This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cowell. Well, on this morning's show, we're going to go a little bit old school. We're going to get a bit churchy, a bit traditional, and examine what's best about the English literary canon. One of Ireland's most respected literary critics, Sophia Helen, celebrates the life and legacy of Jane Austen. She was never well off. She would have liked to be, but she wasn't. And she never knew the fame we associate with her. And when you see people dismissing Jane Austen, it still does still happen as a frothy romantic novelist. Nothing of the kind. These are quite satirical and bitter books at a certain level, but they're very witty at another level. You have to think of Muriel Spark, you have to think of Nancy Mitford, you have to think of Molly Keane. Molly Keane was a great Jane Austen fan, and that's where you get it coming out again. They are sharp, they are dark, and they are close to the bone. That's what makes them good. And the indefeatable Senator David Norris highlights what's best about the Book of Common Prayer. So there is this wonderful beauty and consolation of language, but also nobody died for the making of Ulysses. Nobody was killed so that the great Gatsby could be published. But if you go back to the history of the Reformation, people like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, and that was such a huge struggle, and Archbishop Cranmer, who was the author of the Book of Common Prayer, he paid with his life as well. So it is a precious book. But first, Marianne, Louisa and Cassandra Knight, May Lou and Cass, were Jane Austen's nieces in Ireland. Jane knew her nieces very well, and they were often the subject of her hilarious letters. What's interesting about Jane Austen's nieces is that the Knight sisters went on to lead lives that bore a remarkable resemblance to the plots of their aunt's famous novels. Handsome noblemen, dashing officers and quirky clergymen sought their hands in marriage, just like Jane Austen's heroines. Well, Sophia Hillen's new book, Jane Austen's Nieces in Ireland, highlights the pains of blighted love, the joy of patience rewarded and the sorrow of losing a childhood home. Drawing on diaries, manuscripts and letters, Mary Lou and Cass tells for the first time the story of the Knight Sisters and their extraordinary journey from the ordered world of Regency England to the turbulent upheaval of 19th century Donegal. Sophia gave me a background to her love affair with Jane Austen. My name's Sophia Hillen. All of my life I've been an interested reader of Jane Austen, a Jane Austen enthusiast. And by great good fortune I came across some fascinating information which meant that my book on Jane Austen's nieces in Ireland has come out just in time for the bicentenary of the uh, publication not only of Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, but going on until 2017, all of her work. So, Sophia, can you tell me a little bit about May Lou and Cass, Jane Austen's nieces in Ireland? It's an extraordinary, uncanny read. It was an uncanny find. I came across it almost by accident that one of them had married Lord George Hill, who I knew had been a landlord in Donegal. That's all I knew about him. Did not know he'd married one of Jane Austen's nieces. So to find that fact, first of all, was extraordinary. Then to go across to England and discover that there were documents and letters and diaries, which really had been overlooked, was, again, 
curious. And when I looked into all of these and found there were letters from the famine, letters about the Land League, I thought, well, what is going on here? And I realised that my background is in literary criticism, but I thought there's more going on here. There's, there's, there's social history. And more than that, there is a commentary on the lives of women. And not just women in Ireland, but women generally in the 18th and 19th century. So that's what I found was unfolding before me. And it was a vast jigsaw with many missing pieces at the beginning. And your book tells the story of Jane Austen's nieces in Ireland and how these three women led very typical lives of middle class women at that time and the opportunities and challenges they faced. Well, the thing about these sisters is they were more upper class than middle class. Jane Austen was middle class. She was the daughter of a parson. But her her brother, Eastgard's father, Edward Knight, inherited from childless relatives. So he was moved up. And that meant that they were members of the landed gentry. Jane Austen could observe that, but she was not part of that. She was very much the poor relation. They grew up in these two vast estates with everything that a young lady could hope, except the possibility of inheritance. Now, they would have been quite comfortable as their two elder sisters, Fanny and Lizzie, were. There was a bank crash, you know, the sort of thing that simply couldn't happen here. There was a bank crash, which meant that Edward Knight lost £20,000. Multiply by 60. I was just doing the calculations there. £20,000. We're literally looking at millions and millions. And that meant that the youngest members of the family who were not already placed, the girls, I mean, the boys were always going to be sent to Oxford. They were always going to be given careers in the army or the church. But the girls would have to marry well. And marriage then was a career, the only career open to a young lady. They couldn't enter the professions. They couldn't go to the university. They had to marry well. Marriage was a job. And you get that all through Jane Austen. That's where I think poor Mrs. Bennet in Pride and Prejudice gets a very bad press because all she's trying to do is make sure her girls have proper jobs. And, you know, while some people will just, you know, dismiss Jane Austen as romantic fiction and all a bit kind of obsessed about marriage and women and all a bit footy-duddy, Jane Austen was a very insightful, courageous commentator on social life and the plight of women in these islands at that time. She was. And her view was not popular. People didn't really want to think much about this. They didn't want to think about the issues that she raised, for example, a situation you find in Sense Sensibility where a brother will evict his sisters. That was going to happen. It had happened to her. Her brother, Edward, who was very wealthy and had several properties, didn't think of giving a home to Jane Austen, her sister, his mother, for eight years. And they were in rented accommodation. During that time, she couldn't get much writing done. It wasn't until 1809, remember she dies in 1817, that she had a steady, safe home. And that only happened because his wife had died and he really needed his sisters and his mother to help him with the babysitting. And at 41, Jane Austen dies a spinster. But in her lifetime, she produced so many magnificent books and, you know, the challenges she would have faced writing as a woman in 18th century England. Yes, and you're right to class her as an 18th century writer because she's very much more 18th century than 19th century. She began very young and her early work is worth reading. It is extremely funny and extremely witty and she does address the issues even in her teens. But she had to publish anonymously. Her first work, Pride and Prejudice, was first written in 1795. The, the works tended to be sent back unread. Not until 1811 that she even sees publication and she makes very little money from it. So she's writing for the sake of it, but she wasn't writing saying to herself, this is a nice little occupation for me. She did want to make money. She once said, I write for pewter like everybody else. She didn't see much pewter. Very little money came in almost to the end of her life. So she never saw very much. And in that bank crash I'm talking about where her brother lost 20,000, she lost 13 pounds. Again, when you multiply that by 60, that was a lot to her. 
And, you know, when she sold the royalties for her books, they were usually around 200 sterling. So when you put that all into perspective... She really didn't have much money. She was never well off. She would have liked to be, but she wasn't. And she never knew the fame we associate with her. So what happens to her, her nieces, when they live out the plots of her novels, to me, what's going on is that they are bearing out the truth of what she saw. And when you see people dismissing Jane Austen, it it does still happen as a frothy, romantic novelist. Nothing of the kind. These are quite satirical and bitter books at a certain level, but they're very witty at another level. You have to think of Muriel Spark, you have to think of Nancy Mitford, you have to think of Molly Keane. Molly Keane was a great Jane Austen fan, and that's where you get it coming out again. They are sharp, they are dark, and they are close to the bone. That's what makes them good. And there's been so many comparisons with Shakespeare. And when we were talking earlier, we were talking about the universal characters Mm. in Shakespeare. And what we see in Jane Austen and her books, whether it's Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Pride and Prejudice, we can relate to the highs and lows and joys and the pains of the women and what they endured. And also the judgments the societies gave on certain families and the isolations and the social stigmas and all of that. She admired Shakespeare greatly and she admired Pope, she admired Dr Johnson and what all of those like to do is look at the universals which characterise human nature and then they will turn them into caricatures they will turn them into exaggerations or they will turn them into tragic characters and you do have tragic characters in Jane Austen. Think of poor Mrs Smith in Persuasion. Think of what happens to poor Miss Bates who has been rich and has fallen on hard circumstances and Emma Woodhouse humiliates her. Think of what happens to Marianne in Sense and Sensibility, she almost dies. She's never herself again. There are plenty of casualties. And think of the great survivors, like Charlotte Lucas. I think Charlotte Lucas is one of the great undersung characters in literature. She does a mean thing to her friend, Elizabeth Bennet, by sliding in there and preventing Mary Bennet from marrying Mr. Collins. I wouldn't want to marry Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins is trying to do a decent thing and address the fact that he's, he's going to take over Longbourn. Elizabeth is so awful to him that he goes away and Charlotte sees her chance because she too is facing spinsterhood and a lonely future. And she gets the job for herself. She cuts out her friend. And what's interesting is that women are making these choices still today. Women undercutting women and all the rest. I think that's it. And that's what really is going on with Elizabeth Bennet and Charlotte Lucas. These are career choices. And Elizabeth, don't forget, Elizabeth is asked by Jane, and it's always taken to be a joke, when did you first begin to know you loved Mr Darcy? And Elizabeth replies, I believe it was when I first saw his beautiful grounds at Pemberley. She doesn't think well of him till she sees what he's got. And that's a really good job for her. So I think Jane Austen sees all of this, and she doesn't miss it. And remember when she went to the equivalent of Pemberley, she was the poor relation. She was given a cut rate by the hairdresser because she was the poor relation. She was there to be useful. And she didn't particularly like that. But she was very pragmatic as a character because Jane Austen was still able to produce so many books, play the system and manage to get what she wanted, however confined as she was. I don't think she got what she wanted, but she wrote some of what she wanted. I know she would have liked to write a great deal more. She was halfway through a wonderful novel called Sanditon in which she takes on the burgeoning tourist industry. I mean, that's a marvellous novel, and I wish that could have been finished. And the whole um, mania for um, developing coastal towns and overrunning it with buildings. She foresaw all that, and she never got it finished. So I know it was frustrating for her to find herself falling ill when she was just getting into her stride, and when fame was really within her grasp.
Now, Sylvia, what I really like about the book is that how you chapter the book is by using different books of Jane Austen. And there are terrific quotes that, like, I sat down on my couch laughing my head off reading and reminding myself just how brilliant Jane Austen is. But you have some lovely poetry. There's interesting pictures, of course, of her family and lots of different letters and everything. There is a, a wonderful amount of research in this. But I'd love to get you just to read a bit and to give listeners an insight into the uncanny similarities between the three nieces of Jane Austen and their fates and the incredible synergies with Jane Austen's books. It makes you ask a lot of unusual questions and think a lot of extraordinary things. It startles you. These similarities are uncanny. And what is this saying? What is this telling us about what Jane Austen saw? And what's this telling us about how riches did not provide happiness? She already knew that, but she she wouldn't have objected to it. So, Sophia, you're going to read from Chapter 2, which is Goodbye from the Cow House, Two Weddings, a Scandal and a Refusal. He's just what a young man ought to be, said she, sensible, good-humoured, lively, and I never saw such happy manners, so much ease, with such perfect good breeding. He is also handsome, replied Elizabeth, which a young man ought likewise to be, if he possibly can. His character is thereby complete. Following her aunt's death, Lizzie's debut was deferred, though not for long. The ball in Ashford and Kent, where she came out, took place in mid-August, scarcely a month after Jane Austen's death. As it happened, the ball did not launch Lizzie in the usual way within her social set. Chance meeting had already decided her future, as her granddaughter, Evelyn Templetown, later described. First met in Paris in 1817, Mr Knight had taken his two elder daughters, Fanny and Elizabeth, there for a period of enjoyment. Edward Rice had been there for the same reason for some considerable time. He was a friend of Elizabeth's brother George, who, while staying with his father and sisters, took him to call. How remarkably pretty your sister is, said Edward, as they left the house. It was love at first sight. They met in Paris in May 1817. In May 1817, Jane Austen was making her last trip to Winchester to die. Her brother Edward was taking his two eldest daughters on a pleasure trip to Paris where one of them met her future husband. And she was married to him at the age of 18, within a year of Jane Austen's death. She also came out that August, a month after Jane Austen died. And it isn't that they weren't sad. It isn't that they weren't sorry. But she was due to be launched into society. And that couldn't really be delayed very long. It was a very different world then, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was a very different world. There was a rhythm to what they were doing. Lizzie, at this stage, was 18. Marianne was 17. Under the normal course of events, she was going to be coming out the following year. Their eldest sister, Fanny, who had once been described by Jane Austen as almost another sister, Fanny was managing the girls. She wasn't going to miss the the rhythm of the seasons. And Fanny herself got married in 1820, which meant that Marianne, who is actually my favourite of the sisters, Marianne, the one thought to be very like poor Aunt Jane, was left, like Jane Austen, a spinster, because she had to manage the younger ones. Again, there there was very little pity for Marianne. You know, somebody's got to do it. This is your job. What's interesting is we also get a bit of Donegal history in the book mm-hmm. and I get a huge insight into the how class played out. But Cassandra, who was uh, Jane Austen, admired her for her fine eyes. And that sounded exactly like her, for her fine eyes and her sweet temper. Cassandra met Lord George Hill, one of the Hillsboroughs uh, of the Downshires. She met him in 1827, 10 years after Jane Austen died. And it was love at first sight. But his mother forbade the match. Straight Lady Catherine de Bourgh, no money, all charm, she said. And you couldn't make that up. Poor Jane Austen would have enjoyed it. And then eight years pass, you're suddenly into persuasion. Eight years pass before she relents and they're allowed to marry. So you've got that for Cassandra. She moves straight from Pride and Prejudice into persuasion. You have Louisa, who is the second. She is the second wife. And she has to live through all manner of sadness. And you see that very much in persuasion as well. What what it's like to be sad. What it's like to be waiting. What it's like to be untimely ripped from your home. And Marianne, 
whom Jane Austen brought to the dentist and the theatre when she was 12 years old. Marianne found herself, and she's the girl who had to give up everything to look after her widowed father when the other girls married and bring up the little ones. She found herself at 53 without a home because her brother, as in sensibility, decided to rent out the house. And it really was quite extraordinary. There was a huge double standard going on. This brother, Edward, had eloped with his sister Fanny's stepdaughter. Huge scandal. And he had to be married rather like Wickham and Lydia. He had to be married very quickly by his brother, William who was a clergyman, for whom the constituency, the, the living was being kept warm. But William, three years earlier, had a scandalous attachment with the governess. The governess was dismissed and William was most severely forgiven. So there was one law for the men of the family. There was another law for the women of the family. And the women's job, the girls' job as they grew up, was to look after everyone, to keep their reputations intact, to make suitable marriages if possible, and if not, to take whatever role could be found for them in some of their brothers' houses. What do you think Jane Austen would say of women's literature today? I think she would enjoy one particular pastiche. I think she would really enjoy Bridget Jones. That That is clearly, and Helen Fielding has said it, that is a take on Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion. I do think she would enjoy Molly Keane, and Molly Keane was a great Jane Austen fan. I don't know. I'm trying to think which she might enjoy. I think she would very much enjoy Alice Munro, who's just won the Nobel, because she has that same kind of insight, that same kind of unsparing view of how life is lived, and particularly for women. I think she would enjoy Jane Gardham, the English writer. I think she would enjoy Kazuo Ishiguro. Those are the ones I, I think she would be saying, yes, good. And 200 years after the publication of Pride and Prejudice, and, you know, my nieces will be reading Pride and Prejudice and other Jane Austen classics, mm-hmm. Isn't it extraordinary? Of so many books that will disappear into history and this woman who had to fight for her voice and how how she has thrived and survived the years. Yes, and she did have to fight. She had to fight to be published and she had to fight to be recognised. She didn't want anyone to know who she was. Her brother dropped her. And really for a lady to be writing was, was, quite, was quite a struggle. She greatly admired an Irish writer here, Mariah Edgeworth. She once wrote to her niece, I'm reading no one's books but Miss Edgeworth's, yours and mine, and they exchanged books. So Mariah Edgeworth also battled, you know, to, to be in print and to be taken seriously. I think I think hers was a remarkable achievement and I think she led the way for the Charlotte Brontes, for the George Eliot and for the women writers of today. And that's why we go back to her, because these are truths not necessarily universally acknowledged, but worthy of universal acknowledgement. Now, one thing I was very surprised to read that both Mark Twain and Charlotte Bronte hated Jane Austen. Yet, luminaries like Virginia Woolf, George Eliot, and of course, Henry James absolutely loved her. Why do you think there's so many diverse opinions on Jane Austen? And why do you think she has provoked those very critical opinions? These are uncomfortable truths. Uh, Charlotte Bronte hadn't read her at the time she dismissed her. And then later on, Charlotte Bronte had rather grudgingly to accept, yes, she was rather good. Mark Twain I can't account for, but Mark Twain had his own style. Henry James did love her, and Henry James was a great stylist. Ian Forster loved her, L.P. Hartley. So many looked back to Jane Austen because they recognised that this was a stylist par excellence and one who was as unsparing of herself as of her readers. And Henry James has said he learned so much about writing about society and the kind of the, in, the unusual goings on in society from reading Jane Austen. I think what it was is Jane Austen wrote in many ways like a playwright. I think had she been born in the Restoration or earlier in the 18th century, she would have been a playwright because she hears, she hears the voices of her characters. Now, Henry James 
wasn't a playwright and rather signally failed in that regard. So he's looking at a master who could have excelled in another medium. And I think you've got that going on, her great love of theatre, her great love of performance. Charlotte Bronte's much more interior writer. You go inside into the mind with Charlotte Bronte. And to an extent, you, you could say that about Henry James. But Henry James recognised that he was in the presence of a master and that she was able to do something that he aspired to. And do you think that Jane Austen can be replaced by another brilliant writer? I don't think she can be replaced. I would love to think that somebody would step up and maybe aspire to equal her, but she will not be replaced. Sophia, I think you're going to read now from one of the last chapters in your book. I think this chapter really brings out the tremendous research that you did, and it's about Marianne, who most people would have said was most like Jane Austen. The family said that. The family thought she was the one who was very like poor Aunt Jane. One of her cousins who didn't particularly like her said, I don't think she's very pretty. She was. Thought, her brother thought she was very pretty. I don't think she's very pretty, she said, but her greatest recommendation to me is being very like poor Aunt Jane. And this letter is one of the last that she wrote. She lived to be nearly 95 and she'd entered the last year of her life and she was obliged to have her letters read to her by her niece, who's also called Cassandra, like her sister. And she writes the letter and her niece writes a postscript. And they're writing to an, a, another relative who has a wedding in his house. If I were as young as you are, said Marianne, I would write my thanks and congrats on a larger sheet of paper. But as the case stands, I am obliged to content myself with this tiny miserly scrap, which I hope you will manage to read before you throw it into the blazing fire. I hope writing your very nice letter to me did not tire you too much. I liked your letter so much and so did Cassandra, who helped me read it. I think the sound of Henry's missus a very nice one. And I send him and you my hearty congratulations and best love. It seems to be the fashion to be poor. So of course I am. But if I can hunt up a new sixpence before very long, I shall send it to Henry to spend on a wedding present for himself. If it never arrives, tell him I'm probably frozen or in prison. I'm so very sorry you've been ill, dearest Edward, and sincerely trust you're getting better and will soon be well again. What severe weather we are having. Not at all pleasant and very cold indeed. I have not been out of the house for ever so long, and I hope you have not either. I am pretty well, thank you, but weak enough to satisfy anybody. This is very pretty and nice to write upon. The paper, I mean. I can't write any more now, so goodbye, my dearest Edward. It's terrific stuff and it gives you great atmosphere on the kind of the, the peculiar relationships people had and how they just got on with it. Yes, the postscript by her niece Cassandra, who was again, this is a grandniece of Jane Austen's, who was again evicted by her own brother and died in Dublin in 1901, having been evicted from her house. She writes the postscript to her cousin to the same letter. So, the girl that held, had hold of the tow rope has landed her boy safely, and I enclose a line in Aunt May's letter to wish you and Cecy joy very heartily, as Miss Godley sounds so nice and, moreover, has Irish blood in her. I do not think that's a drawback in your opinion. Remembering thetic reminiscences of Julia was Sullivan. Poor thing, I always think you behaved rather badly to her. So you'd better be doubly kind to Miss Helen Godley and the other's account. Of course, you won't show this to Cessie. And die bad girl. I mean, old woman. How one does forget that one grows old. That is absolutely fantastic now. It's bringing a huge smile to my face. For those who want to explore more about lives of Jane Austen's nieces in Ireland, presumably they're their houses that they can visit around the country. And of course, in Donegal, we have a wealth of information about the family. We do. You can go and visit the graves in Tully outside Dromelton. You can see Marianne and Louisa, one leaning toward the other. Lord George and Cassandra, because like Captain Wentworth, he was buried with his first love. They are in the middle of Letterkenny in Conwell Cemetery. Ballyar House, which is owned by the journalist Roy Greenslade and his wife Noreen 
Taylor Greenstead is outside. You can, that's not open to the public, but you can see it from the road outside Ramelton. The Mulhollands, descendants of Edward Knight, live in Ballywalter, they live in Ballyscullion House, and they, they have been tremendously helpful in bringing all this to the fore and in making papers available. And it's more and more the, the places associated with Jane Austen in Ireland, in Donegal, are being opened up. And Cassandra Hill, of course, the, the grandniece, the only one born in Ireland, she is buried here in Dublin. So, Sophia, you have a new uh, novel coming out in early spring. I do. In early spring 2014, my novel, The Friday Tree, will be published by Ward River Press. And it's the first one in their series? It's the first one in their series. Uh, the Poolbeg is relaunching Ward River Press, their literary imprint. The novel is set in 1955 in Ireland, and it's about those changes. It's about that time before everything tipped into the 1960s and life in the north and all over Ireland change. And it was David Marcus who encouraged you to write the book? It was David Marcus, yes. He had he had published my first work in the 1970s and 1980s and he urged me to write this and he was its first reader. So I'm very pleased about that because it was he who first launched Poolbeg and it's very appropriate that it should be Poolbeg Ward River imprints who are publishing this. And that was literary critic Sophia Hillen talking to me about the unbelievable contribution of Jane Austen to English literature. Coming up next, we're going to slow it all down and get all spiritual on you. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.